Well, morning, everyone. Uh, fantastic to be here and um, super encouraging this morning, isn't it, to see that the impact on our kids and their desire that their friends come to know Jesus. And uh, what Dawn shared earlier, I almost feel like I don't need to jump up and speak. What a wonderful reflection on the Word of God. Uh, but I will speak. I will preach. So let's, uh, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful Word that is full of riches of gold, of treasure. And please, this morning, uh, we pray, open our, our hearts, our minds uh, more, more and more so that we might grasp who your son is more deeply and the implications for our life more fully. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, when we think about the things that people find most offensive about Christianity, of which I think there's a growing list, isn't there? Um, one of the key ones is the exclusivity of Jesus. That is, there is one God... And there is one way to God, and that one way to God is Jesus. There is one life, one eternal life, and Jesus is the one way to receive that eternal life. No other religion, spirituality, good living is a path to God, is a path to heaven. Now, I imagine for many of you, you understand this is just a fundamental of Christianity. Jesus, the only way to life. But for others sitting here this morning, this could be quite a shock right now for you, rattles you. And can I say, that's okay. This takes thinking. This takes adjusting to. This takes thinking about, is this the truth? Look with me at Jesus' words to the Jewish religious leaders of his day in that passage that was just read, or just beyond it. Verse 39. Chapter 5, verse 39. Look with me there. Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus talking to the Jewish religious leaders, these are super committed, super diligent, super religious people. For them, the, uh, the, the love of God, the service of God, the God thing is not a part-time thing, it's an all-day, everyday thing for these guys. And Jesus says himself, you diligently study the scriptures. That's the Old Testament part of the Bible, the first three quarters that you have in your hands. They have God's word. They study God's word. They seek to obey all the laws in God's word. In fact, they, they wanted so much to obey the laws, they'd set up their own laws to make sure they didn't break God's laws. If anyone should be right with God, if anyone should have eternal life, you'd think it's these guys. It'd be these people. And that's what they think they're doing. Jesus says, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. They think what they're doing will give them eternal life. And they're doing a right thing. They're rightly, diligently studying the Old Testament scriptures. The diligent study of the Bible is a good, good, good thing. The right thing to do because it's how we know God. But they have a problem. What's their problem? They refuse to come to the one that the scriptures testify about. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. The Old Testament is all pointing towards Jesus, which teaches us about how we read the Old Testament. The Old Testament all testifies to Jesus, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And yet these religious leaders who've been studying and poring over the Old Testament Bible that looks forward to the coming of Jesus, when Jesus shows up, they will not have him. They reject him and refuse to come to him to have life. And so Jesus says these deeply zealous religious people will miss out on eternal life if they continue in this path will not be in heaven if they continue in this path. You think, but they love God, don't they? They've devoted their whole lives to God, don't they? 
Verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. Jesus says these deeply religious people who seem to have devoted their entire lives to God do not actually love God in their hearts. Don't really love God on the inside. How would you know? How does Jesus know? Verse 43, they reject him. They reject him. Jesus comes from God in his Father's name and they reject him. And Jesus says, that shows you actually don't love God. You don't have eternal life unless you change. Do you see how profound and massive this is and how it clashes with all our society's thinking? Not everyone who claims to love God actually loves God. People's religion or spirituality or good living or search for God can look like it's done out of love for God, but can actually be done out of all sorts of wrong and selfish motives and, in fact, is a way to keep God at bay, to be away from God. How do you know if someone actually loves God? They love Jesus. They accept Jesus. They receive, they come to Jesus to have life. And if you don't come to Jesus to have life, then you show, I don't actually love God and I don't actually have eternal life. What you do with Jesus is the key. Now, this is absolutely fundamental Christianity. Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to eternal life. And while many of us hold this to be true and fundamental to Christianity, the danger for all of us is is slippage. Recently, I heard about a kid who uh, changed schools. In their previous school, they never did their homework. They couldn't be bothered doing their homework. Their parents were always on their back trying to get them to do their homework. But no matter what the parents did, no matter what the parents threatened, it was a constant struggle. The kid never did their homework. The kid shifts to another school and instantly it changes. They start doing their homework from day one. Now, why did that take place? The parents don't even need to badger them now. What's happened to them? Well, it wasn't because the teacher busted them. It wasn't because there was a big school meeting assembly about you must do your homework and if you don't do your homework, there's all going to be... It was just the way it was in that school. It was just the culture of the school. Over many years, the school had built a culture that valued learning, that valued work, that thought homework is important. And so generally, just all the kids in the school did their homework every day. It just was not a thing not to do your homework. So the new kids turn up, enter into this environment, and the culture just sort of catches them and drags them along and they flow along with it. It's like a stream moving, flowing, and they plop into the stream and the stream just carries them along. And there is no longer a thought in their mind that I won't do my homework. It's just the way it is here. When it comes to God, life, religious things, the culture of the Western world has been flowing in a direction, a certain direction for the last 40 years, a consistent, flowing, moving stream in a certain direction. And the direction is pluralism. That is, there is not one God and one way to God, heaven, eternal life. There are many ways that are equally valid. A plurality of ways, pluralism. You know, the, the, the image of the many paths up the mountain. God is at the top, humanity is at the bottom, but there's not just one path up the mountain to get to God. There are many paths up the mountain, some more windy than others. They're all on different parts of the mountain. But it doesn't really matter which one you choose, as long as you're on the search, as long as you're on the move towards God, moving up the mountain, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or being a good bloke 
or connecting with God by being in the ocean or meditating or walking in the mountains and enjoying nature. There's, there's heaps of ways to God and maybe there's even a path for those Christians too. It's, it's, it's a very easy, attractive way. All ways lead to God. And it's very easy, like the kid, to be just caught in that stream and carried along with the culture. We can just be caught up in the stream, the flow of culture in our society and carried along with it. But I would say many of us have sought to stand strong as Jesus, in Jesus the only way and sought not to drift with culture. We have sought to drive our conviction in like a, like a post, like a star picket into the middle of the stream so that we stand strong. Jesus is the only way, even as culture flows past, flows around us. But it's hard to remain in a movable post. It's driven into the bed of a stream for long periods of time with the stream eventually having an impact. The current of pluralism pushes past, pushes past, pushes past against the post, eroding the ground around the post, pushing on the post, and the post can start to get a lean, can start to get a bit of a tilt, can millimetre by millimetre, month by month move. And so we can find that we are holding on to the truth that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to life, but a wearing down goes on. An erosion of conviction goes on, a slippage. We hear the thoughts of people around us, we feel the feelings of the people around us and in the background of our mind we start to think things like, Jesus is the only way to eternal life, I think. Or, Jesus is the only way to God, but we squirm inside. Or, only those who accept Jesus love God. They may be other really sincere religious people, they love God in their own way too. Or, Jesus is the only way to God, but it does feel a bit arbitrary that God just chose Jesus as the only way. Could he have chosen another way? Has he chosen other ways? Could there be other ways? And left unchecked, this sort of slippage of conviction around the exclusivity of Jesus will actually white-hand all of our Christian life. It'll white-hand our desperate hanging on to Jesus as the only way to eternal life. It'll white-hand our desperation to see others come to Jesus to receive eternal life. It'll white-hand our heartfelt worship of Jesus, um, the passion of him as our one and only saviour. And so what is it that is going to fortify us against this slippage? What's going to drive that post of conviction that Jesus is the only way deeper into the bedrock of the stream so its culture just flows past us and we're unaffected? And what will not only fuel conviction that Jesus is the only way but cause us to love it? To love it deeply from our heart is to understand who Jesus is. It's to see Jesus clearly. Because if you understand who Jesus is, then it becomes absolutely clear why he is the only way to receive eternal life. Why, if you won't accept him, you don't have the love of God in your heart. That Jesus is not arbitrarily picked by God as the way to life. No, it's tied up with the very fabric of who Jesus is. If you understand who Jesus is, then the fact that he is the only way to eternal life makes sense. And more than that, it causes your heart to sing. That's what Jesus has been revealing in the first half of chapter 5. Who he is. And each piece, each truth that Jesus gives regarding who he is, is like a blow of the hammer onto that post that drives it deeper into the bedrock of the stream. That builds our confidence our deep inner conviction that Jesus is the only way to life and causes us to love that Jesus is the only way to life. And so let's look together at Jesus. 
Four big truths, four big pieces. Strikes of the sledgehammer to drive the post, each one driving the post deeper into the fact that Jesus is the only way to eternal life and building that conviction and love amongst us. First, strike of the hammer. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, the Son. We heard about this last week. Remember, Jesus does the profound miracle at the beginning of chapter 5 where he heals a man who has been paralysed for 38 years. Profound miracle. But he heals him on the Sabbath. Now, the miracle is not just a miracle, it's actually a sign. The sign is pointing to something, pointing to something about Jesus. And the thing that it's pointing to about Jesus is that he is equal with God. He, this man, this human being, standing before the people right there, who looks like every other first central century Middle Eastern man walking by, is equal with God. We looked at this last week, but Jesus does it in a couple of ways. The first is small, but the fact that he calls God his father. If you were a zealous Jew, if you were a Jew, you never called God your father. He was our father, the father of the Jewish nation. But the Lord God Almighty, perfect in holiness, was not my personal father. And yet here Jesus calls God his father, declaring he has a unique relationship with God. A father-son relationship with God. A father-son relationship in which he is equal with God. But the second thing is much bigger, which we saw last week. Here is what the sign of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath is pointing to. Jesus declares that the key reason he is able to heal this man on the Sabbath and not break God's Sabbath law is that he doesn't need to obey the Sabbath because he is acting just like his father, God. The Jews held that God didn't need to obey the human Sabbath law because you could see that God was working to this very day. God's sustaining creation, he's keeping it going, he's doing his work of providence. God is obviously working and so not keeping the Sabbath. Why does God not need to keep the Sabbath? Because he's the creator, He is the ruler. He doesn't need to keep the Sabbath law. But Jesus says in verse 17, same with me, same with me. Jesus says, God is my father. He doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. He's always working. And so I, as his son, am always working too. I don't need to stop working on the Sabbath. He aligns himself with God, who does not need to keep the Sabbath law given to humans because he is equal with God. Now, the Jewish leaders immediately perfectly grasp what he's saying. Look at verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is a turning point in the gospel where the persecution of Jesus ramps up. Because what greater blasphemy is is there than this, declaring that you are equal with the one true God. Unless it's true. (laughs) All of the universe, in all of the universe there are only two categories of being. Creator, creature. There's above the line, creator, the one, the only creator God who's created and owns all things. Only one being fits into that category. Below the line is every other creature, created, made, owned by God. 
God is creator, human beings are creature. God is eternal, human beings are not. God is powerful, human beings are under his power. Creator above the line, creature below the line. But in his words here, Jesus is effectively saying, you know that creator category. I'm in that category. I'm above the line. I sit there with God. This is absolutely astonishing. A man calls himself equal with God. As we heard again over summer... Jesus doesn't let us think of him as a mere good moral teacher, a spiritual guru, an enlightened man, an all-round good guy. He claims to be God the Son, equal with God. And so he's either evil, delusional, or he is who he says he is. There's no safety in pretending that he's just a good moral teacher or the like. This man, a real physical human being, claims equality with God as God the Son. Now that's straight away, doesn't it cause you to go, no wonder he is the one and only way to eternal life. Jesus is not some peripheral figure, some arbitrary decision that God said, just through Jesus, that's the way. I could have chosen any way or any person, but just through Jesus, he's the way to eternal No, no, no. He is the Lord God Almighty. It must be God who grants life. Jesus is God the Son. And so when you come to him, you're coming to God himself. Second blow of the hammer. Jesus is God the Son who works in absolute unity with his Father. Everything Jesus does, he and the Father are working together. The Father and the Son have distinct roles but are absolutely equal and one in their work. In verse 19 and following, Jesus responds to the Jewish religious leaders' outrage that he is claiming to be equal with God. And he responds by doing two things. He clarifies what he means by being equal with God. Equal as a, father, as a son to a father. Not another God. Not a separate God. No, no, no. But he pushes more firmly as well on his equality with the Father. That he and the Father are one. And they carry out their work in absolute unity. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Look at the relationship of the Father and the Son. A number of things stand out. Firstly, the oneness of the Father and the Son. The equality of the Father and the Son. In verse 19, whatever the Father does... The Son does also. Whatever God the Father does, God the Son does as well. When it comes to their work, their action, what they are on about, they are in absolute equality and united in it. Whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all he does. All he does. There is nothing that the Father knows or wills that the Son does not know or will. They are absolutely one, united, equal, unified in their work because they are one being. Father, Son, Spirit. Yet, they have different roles. The person of the Son is distinct from the Father. Come back to verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also, but 
only because he does what he sees his father doing. The image comes from working life in the ancient world. Imagine you could time travel back to ancient Palestine. You're walking down the street. You see a young boy. You walk up to the young boy and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the boy looks at you like you're an idiot. (laughs) Sons do what their fathers do. The son of a carpenter became a carpenter. The son of the fisherman became a fisherman. You learned the trade from your dad, you worked with your dad, and eventually the son took over from the dad. It was the family business. And so the son of the carpenter watches his father, learns from his father, over time takes over this role and that role, and eventually all roles from his father. But because his father is the master carpenter, and the son loves his father and wants to honour his father, and is totally aligned with the will of his father, The son does exactly what he sees his father doing and so he chisels the way he's seen his father chisel. He planes and carves the way he's seen his father plane and carve and the product produced by the son is the father's work because the son is only ever doing what he sees his father's doing. There is a total unity in the work of the father and the son. God the son, though one, though equal with his father, never acts independently. He only ever does what he sees his father doing. His will, his actions are aligned with, are his father's will and actions. They share a will. But God leads, initiates. The father leads, initiates, shows his son what he is doing and the son carries out that work. The father grants life in himself to the son so that the son might give life to whom he chooses. The father entrusts judgment to the son so that the son might judge as he hears from his father. The father sends the son to do his work. The son is equal to the father. They are one being, but distinct from the father, with a different role in the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. All that the father initiates is carried out by the son in the power of the spirit. But there is an absolute unity in the work of the triune God. So that verse 23, if you don't honour the son, you don't honour the father who sent him. Ah. No wonder the way you treat the Son is the way you treat the Father. If you listen to the Son, you are listening to the Father. If you receive the Son, it shows you love the Father who sent him. But if you reject the Son, it shows that you do not love the Father who loves his Son. Jesus is the only way to God. Third hammer strike. Jesus is God the Son who works in absolute union with his Father and so gives life. Jesus is God the Son who gives life. Verse 20, look there. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. Father and the Son work in absolute unity, but verse says the Father will show the Son even greater works, even greater things than Jesus has been doing, even greater miracles than the healing of this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. What can these things be? Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He determines. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so the Son. In the giving of eternal life, the Son is one equal with the Father. And the Son implements the Father's work of giving life to human beings. Greater works that Jesus does. Look at verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has uh, has eternal life 
and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Again, Jesus, the Son, is the one who gives life. When the spiritually dead hear the voice of the Son of God, they come to life. They actually cross over from death to life. Every person who becomes a Christian crosses from one realm to another, from one kingdom to another. It's like there's an invisible spiritual barrier. They cross from the realm of death to the realm of life. And they cross from the realm of, of, of condemnation to the realm of eternal life. If we could see spiritual reality, if we could see the world rightly in this realm, what we would be looking at for each person is whether they are living in the realm of death or whether they are living in the realm of life. Only two categories, death, life, condemnation, eternal life. Imagine now, if I could somehow look around this room and see the actual spiritual state of every one of you. We could all do it. We could look around. Imagine if people who are living in the realm of death had a red aura around them. Imagine if people living in the realm of life had a blue aura around them. What would we see? What would we see as we looked around this room? What would people see when they looked at you? What would we see as we walked around day by day in our society? It's very stark, isn't it? Two realms, two two kingdoms, death, life. Which are we in? Which are the people we know and love in? But even more importantly, it's possible to cross over. It's possible to move from one realm to the other, from death to life. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Those who hear Jesus' words and trust his Father who has sent him to give life will cross over from death to life. Verse 25, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who are spiritually dead now, cut off from life with God, when they hear the voice of the Son of God and trust it as God's voice to them, there is a spiritual resurrection that takes place. They come to life. Jesus' words to us are life if we will receive them because they are God's words to us. There's a picture in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel about the nation of Israel. And it's a wonderful, vivid vision that God gives Ezekiel. It's a valley of dry bones. It's like there's been an epic battle fought there decades, decades, decades earlier. And the corpses have just been left to lay where they, um, where they were killed in the aftermath of the battle. Left to rot, to decay, until there's nothing left apart from dry, bleached, dead, lifeless bones. It's the picture of the nation of Israel spiritually dead and under the judgment of God. But the profound thing is that God tells Ezekiel in the vision, it's a vision, to speak the word of God to the bones. To speak the word of God to the bones. And when Ezekiel speaks the word of God to the bones, they begin to rattle. They begin to move. They begin to shake. They begin to come back together. Sinews and tendons form muscles, re-knit and gather around them. The skin comes and, and they come to life. He speaks again and breath goes into the bones. The word of God comes into the bones. What was dead and desiccated and lifeless and turning to dust is now full of life. 
And it's a prophecy about what God will do spiritually for the dead nation of Israel. But the principle is, God's word takes what is dead and lifeless and brings it to life. And that word is in his son. When you hear the voice of the son of God and believe it, you cross from death to life. When you hear Jesus' words and trust they are from his father who has sent him to give life, you come to life. When people take Jesus' word, red aura disappears, blue aura comes. People living in the realm of death and condemnation cross over to the realm of life, eternal life. And it's happening every day. And for every human being is the most critical thing that can ever happen. Can I ask you this morning, if you've not done it, if you've not crossed over from death to life, why don't you do it this morning? Why don't you just take Jesus at his word today and cross over from death to life, just in your heart, quietly? Do you accept that Jesus' word is God's word to you and that he has come to give you life? No hype. If you believe that, just pray to God in your heart and he will honour that prayer and you will cross from death to life right here and now. In September 1990, I'm sitting in a small church in Sydney. I'm dragged along by a friend. Uh, Quietly sitting there, I heard the message preached from the Bible that Jesus died for me so that I could live with God forever. And I believed it. I'd heard it before, but that day I believed it. I trusted that Jesus' words were God's words that he had sent his son for me. And in that moment, I crossed from death to life. No one knew it. No one could see anything. I didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't really know it was happening myself. But a profound miracle of God was working in my heart to draw me to believe that this, is, this word of Jesus is God's word and accept Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And I crossed from death and eternal condemnation to life, eternal life and salvation forevermore. Why don't you do that today? But look here at the reason that it's possible that Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. And this is very deep. This is very profound. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The reason Jesus can give us life is here. And the reason is the Father has life in himself and he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So oneness again, the Father and the Son both have life in themselves, the life of God. But distinctness, the Son has life in himself because it has been granted to him by his Father. The Father, God the Father, is the source of life. He has life in himself. There is no life anywhere apart from God the Father. He is the source, the fountain from which life flows. All life flows. But he eternally, eternally has granted the Son to have life in himself. And so the Son is now the source of life to those who look for him for life. Jesus the Son gives life, eternal life to people causes people to cross over from death to life because he has life in himself. Because the Father who has life in himself has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, if you're finding these things difficult to grasp, you're in good company. (laughs) There's mystery around these truths about God. And it can make you think, worry a bit. Is, Is this too complex? Should it be like this? But the one true God, who is so incredible and wonderful... Surely he wouldn't be simple. We'd make up a simple God. 
No, no, the true God is profound and there is mystery. Yet despite the mystery, there's also clarity. God the Son is not a creature. He's not made. He is eternally God the Creator. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one being. But the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Not just begotten of the Father. He's not, just, he's not born of the Father. No, eternally begotten of the Father. Always, forever, dro- deriving life from the Father. No starting point, no being born. Rather, the life of the Son is forever generating from the life of the Father. The Father is eternally the life-giving source of the Son. And so, Jesus the Son, who has life in himself from the Father, grants life to those who trust his word. Doesn't that straight away cause you to go, no wonder Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life. God the Father who has life in himself grants the Son to eternally have life in himself. And so God the Son is the source of life. There is nowhere else to go. There is no other source. Jesus, God the Son, is the life giver. And there is no other. Final brief blow of the hammer. (laughs) Jesus, God the Son, works in absolute unity with the Father and so gives life and judges. The judgment is the culmination of his life-giving work. Verses 28 to 30. I won't read it, but a resurrection day is coming. The day of resurrection is the end of the world when judgment occurs. We heard it in the Daniel 12 reading. When the resurrection day comes, judgment comes, and Jesus is the judge. All judgment has been entrusted to him by his Father, and he will judge in a way that he hears from his Father and to please his Father. On that day he will rise all from their graves, some raised to death and banishment from God. Some raised to life. Jesus is here saying that he is the one who will bring that day. The final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the culmination of his life-giving work. And on that day, those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And we can easily hear, ah, see, Jesus weighs up the good and bad that we do. And he works out who's been more gooder than badder, they're in heaven, who's been more badder than good, they're in, they're in hell. No, no, no. In the context, who is it that has done good? It's those who've crossed from life, death to life. It's those who have heard the word of Jesus and trusted his Father, the Father who has sent him to give life. It's those who have accepted his Son and followed him as their Lord and God. It's those people who will be raised to eternal life on the last day. That's the good. That's what it is to be good in God's sight. Receive his Son. And the one who has done evil, it's those who have refused to come to Jesus to have life and so remain in death. It's those people who will be raised to eternal condemnation, embodied to eternal condemnation. That's what evil is in God's sight, to reject his son. Jesus is son of God who judges in absolute unity with his father, raising people to eternal life or to eternal condemnation. And so, of course... Only God the Son, the final judge, can give final salvation. So if you understand who Jesus is, what other saviour could there be? What other place could there be to have life? He is God, God the Son. He's working in absolute unity with the Father. So how you treat the Son is how you treat the Father. The Son has life in himself. And so he is the source of life to give eternal life to us if we receive him. 
And he is the final judge who gives final salvation to those who receive his word. If you understand who Jesus is, it builds deep inner conviction that he is the only way to eternal life. And how you treat him is how you treat God. And if you refuse to accept him, you don't really love God. It drives the post of conviction deep into the bedrock of the stream so we won't drift with the latest fads of culture. But it's not a cold conviction. It's a warm conviction filled with love and honour for the Son and His Father and the Spirit. How incredible that the triune God could be working together in absolute unity to achieve this salvation for you, for me. See, if you have no love for God in your heart, the thought that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, you hate it. You think it's evil. You reject it. But if you have love in your heart, then the thought that Jesus is the only way to eternal life thrills you. Of course, how you treat the Son, who is perfectly united with the Father, is how you treat God. And he deserves that glory. Of course, only God the Son can save. He deserves that glory. Of course, God the Son, the source of life, is the only one who can give life. And he deserves that glory. Of course, God the Son, the final judge, is the only one who can give final salvation. And he deserves that glory. And how incredible that he does all those things for us. You start to delight and honour the Son. Your heart swells with love for him. Back to the mountain image. If you've got no love for God in your heart, then you're very happy with the image of a mountain with many paths up it. Lots of ways to God, your God, your afterlife, different ways. You're very happy with it because it's really all about me and what I want to do and what I want to choose and how I want to go. And... But the reality is this. The mountain has a top and a bottom but no middle. It's like something has carved the middle out of the mountain. There's a top and a bottom. Now, I know it doesn't work. The top wouldn't stay up. Just suspend disbelief for a moment. But God is at the top. And we're at the bottom, humanity. And not only are there not many paths up the mountain, there are no paths up the mountain. There is no way to God. Our rejection of God, our failure to live his way, has so fundamentally cut us off from God and life, we are eternally condemned if we are left on our own. But God the Father, in utter unity of will with his Son and the Spirit, sends his Son... The Son who does all things, working in utter unity with his Father, the Son who has life in himself, comes, becomes a man, fully God, fully man, in order to die for us, for our failures, for our sin, for our rejection of God. To throw up a bridge across, to reconnect us back, and the, the, the shape of the bridge is a cross. By his death, we can be reconnected back to God and brought to eternal life. One crossing, one way. And the way to God is God himself, God the Son, Jesus. When we receive the Son, we cross from death to life. If you love God, then you will grow in increasing awe and thankfulness at how incredible it is that Father, Son and Spirit would work together like this for my salvation that I do not deserve. To say there's another way to eternal life, another way to God, it hurts your heart. It's to steal the rightful glory of God the Son. Whereas the conviction that Jesus is the only way to God comes with an inner zeal, a passion, a fire, that God the Son would be on it, that his Father would be on it, that the Spirit would be on it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, that he is one with you, totally equal with you, and yet distinct in his person and role. Thank you that him is life, 
and salvation and that he has chosen to grant us eternal life. Please, Father, as we look to your Son, strengthen our conviction that he is the only way. Please stir our hearts with the knowledge that he is rightly honoured by his saving work, just as you are. And please, Lord, if there is anyone here today who has not crossed from death to life, please do that miracle in their hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.